Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned. But he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's word, let's bow our heads together and ask his guidance and direction on our study this morning. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in these 66 books of the Bible, these books that were first recorded by Moses some 1,400 years before the Lord came, and then we had the New Testament that was recorded during the 70 years or so after our Lord's death on the cross. Father, as we study your word, we come to learn how you think. We come to understand who you are. We understand your attributes, your character. It is through your word that we understand that we are sinners and that we are in need of salvation. It is through your word that we come to understand that uh, you demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And by simply trusting in him, we have eternal life. Father, we come to understand grace, but your grace is more than our minds can truly understand. And we can't fully get our thinking around all the different aspects of your grace, and yet this is to be manifested in our lives and is so to a finite degree because of the work of God the Holy Spirit. Father, as we continue our study of grace, your grace, in the episodes of Israel during the time of Elisha, we pray that you will help us to understand these pictures that you've given us uh, through these various events and that we may have a greater understanding of your grace and how that impacts our thinking and the way we interact with those around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Grace is truly a concept that goes beyond our finite comprehension. We understand it only marginally when we first are saved. It's one of the big problems that a lot of unbelievers have is they just can't understand that salvation is free because, after all, in the rest of life, there's no such thing as free lunch, despite what some people may think. There is only one thing that is truly free to us, and that is salvation as expressed in the, in the Scripture because Jesus Christ is the one who paid the price. He paid the bill so that we can have a salvation simply because we believe in him, because we trust in him. It is through our faith in Christ and him alone that we have this free gift of salvation. And as we come to the cross, we have just a 
just a microscopic understanding of grace. But once we are saved, once we have uh, received God the Holy Spirit, and he begins to teach us through his word, then we begin to understand more and more about God's grace. But one of the things that really, really challenges every one of us is when we come to those passages in Scripture that uh, encourage us and exhort us to deal with other people, these other fallen human beings in our lives, that we have to deal with them in grace as well. And that just goes completely contrary to our sin nature and our own self-absorption. And we don't want to deal with those people in grace, especially if they have hurt us in some way, if they have caused some sort of pain or suffering in our lives. And to the degree that we've experienced that, to the same degree we have difficulty understanding just how to deal with people in grace. And often when we are in rebellion against God and we've rejected God and we have moved away from God and we have a consciousness of our own guilt and our own sin and our own depravity, it's often hard for us to recognize that God truly, freely forgives us and that simply admitting our sins to him through confession really does clear away uh, the guilt sweeps it all out the door, and we have a fresh slate, and we can can move forward. Grace is difficult for us to understand, and yet it is integral to everything in salvation and everything in the spiritual life. Now, as we continue our study in Kings, I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to get another event, another episode, one that has quite horrible in some aspects, that is again a depiction of the grace of God. And again, it has to deal with, has to do with Israel's enemies. Now, last time we looked at the episode involving the Syrians and the fact that they are uh, military enemies of Israel, that is the northern kingdom and that as they were engaged in sending out these raids into the northern kingdom of Israel, that there was a level of frustration on the part of the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, because it seemed as if somebody was giving the enemy inside information, and whenever he would send a combat team into the uh, northern kingdom, they would be met with an ambush, and there were uh, Israelites already there prepared to defend uh, their country. So he thought there was a spy in his camp, and it turned out there wasn't a spy, there was God. And God was listening in on all of his plans and telling Elisha what those plans were, and then Elisha would inform the king of Israel, and Jehoram would then uh, send out his his uh, teams to uh, to ambush the uh, Syrian uh, invaders. And what we saw as we studied that was at some point the king of Syria decided to send a group after Elisha. He sends a hit squad down to assassinate uh, Elisha, but as they come to where he is, the tables are turned, uh, they become uh, blinded, and he takes them to uh, Samaria, to the capital, as his prisoners. But rather than executing them or keeping them as prisoners of war, uh, rather he provides a banquet for them. And we closed out the 
lesson last time, looking at the fact that Elisha then threw this huge uh, banquet before them, setting food and water before them, so that they would, and then releasing them to go back to their to their master. And all of this was a picture of God's grace, and we can see the picture of God's grace from Israel toward her enemies, but this was also to teach the northern kingdom about the fact that as they were in apostasy and had become enemies of God in their arrogance, that God would treat them in the same way that God was having Elisha treat the physical enemies of Israel. And that relates, as I pointed out last time, to the principle that the Lord related in Matthew chapter 5. Now, Matthew 5 is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, as I pointed out, is the Lord Jesus Christ's accurate interpretation of the Mosaic Law and the kind of righteousness that God required that was a righteousness that was superior to the moral, ethical, ritual righteousness that was emphasized by the Pharisees. And so he gives a number of examples in the Sermon on the Mount as to what is required and what should be part of the character of believers. And in verse 44, 43 rather, Jesus said, You've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, and this is the divine mandate and the principle of the Mosaic Law, he says, Love your enemies, bless those who curse you, Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Now, if we just think about those two verses, verses 44 and 45, we get an interpretation of the Mosaic Law. Now, the reason I'm emphasizing that is that when Jesus is teaching at this early stage in his ministry, he's still in a period of time that we refer to as the age of Israel or the dispensation of the law. And so the Mosaic Law is still in effect, and he is emphasizing this principle of loving your enemy. Now, that enemy may be a national enemy. It may be a personal enemy. But the responsibility of the individual is to love that enemy, to bless those who curse you, and to do good to those who hate you. Now, if you come out of a mindset that has been shaped and distorted by the uh, universal fatherhood of God mentality that came out of 19th century Protestant liberalism that was also part of the shift, worldview shift that occurred in the mid-19th century that in, in America and in Western Europe that looked at man as being inherently good, then when you look at a passage like this and you come from that, that framework, you think, oh, this is one of those nice uh, passages that Jesus is talking about where uh, we should not be involved in violence or war or any kind of physical confrontation uh, whatsoever. We need to just love everyone. But if that's what Jesus was talking about, then that would make God, the Father, and Jesus the most hypocritical, inconsistent, contradictory uh, individuals in history. Because the same Mosaic law that emphasized loving your neighbor as yourself, loving your neighbor and um, not and, and not cursing them, 
was the same Mosaic law that directed the Israelite army into the land that God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the same God who told them to completely annihilate every man, woman, and child among the Canaanites. This is the same God who uh, led the Israelite army through the Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, is the angel of the Lord in uh, the book of Judges against the various enemies uh, of God and who also gave direction to both Saul and David to uh, completely destroy and annihilate certain enemies of Israel. So either this God is just a mess of contradictions, which of course is what the rationalist liberal wants us to think, or perhaps they've completely distorted, misunderstood what the Bible teaches about love and what the Bible teaches about God's grace. And of course you know that my conclusion is that they don't understand what the Bible says because they come at the Bible from this presuppositional framework that the Bible is just another work of man, and so it contains contradictions. But we know that the Bible is the revealed Word of God, and so we approach the Bible from the perspective that the Bible is without contradiction. And therefore, when it appears that there is a contradiction, we have to work with it and say, okay, there's no contradiction, so I have misunderstood this at a superficial level, and perhaps I need to think about this a little more uh, precisely, and I need to dig a little more deeply in order to understand concepts related to love, concepts related to grace, concepts related to forgiveness. Now, the Bible makes it clear in passages like this, passages that are restated in uh, later on in the New Testament, like John 13, 34, and 35, when Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, speaking to his disciples, speaking to the church as a whole through his disciples. He said, I give you a new commandment that you love one another even as I have loved you. Now, how did Jesus love them? He gave his life as a substitute for them so that that love that is demonstrated at the cross is to be the hallmark, the, the key evidence in the life of any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ of the truth of the gospel and the reality of the, the truth in all of Scripture. And so we are to love one another as God, for Christ's sake, has loved us, as Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4. But when we start talking about the application of this in terms of forgiveness, because in that same passage there's the emphasis on forgiving one another, a question often comes up. A question was raised uh, last week after I uh, taught and by uh, someone who often has dealt with uh, abusive situations. And I often hear this question from those who have had or experienced abusive situations, whether it had to do with a domestic abuse situation or whether it had to do with some other kind of situation where they have been uh, in in an extremely vulnerable position and someone has taken advantage of them in any number of ways, and they hear that they are to forgive that person and that they are to uh, love that person, and yet they they don't understand how they can put themselves back into that kind of vulnerability again 
where they can be taken advantage of and just abused again. Yet that's what they hear when we talk about forgiving one another and loving one another. And what does it mean, forgive, as Jesus said to to, uh, Peter 70 times 7, when I just get uh, beaten up or abused or maltreated in some way again and again and again? God doesn't want me to just keep going back into those kinds of situations, does he? And no, he doesn't. That's why it's important to understand the overall context of Scripture, not just the context of a passage that talks about these things, but the context of Scripture and to be able to look at issues from the totality of Scripture. The passages that are talking about loving your enemy, uh, blessing those who curse you, uh, forgiving one another, are passages that are talking about individual responses to other individual to individual attacks, and they are emphasizing the fact that we are to be responding in with a mental attitude of love, not a mental attitude that's dominated by hate or anger or resentment or vindictiveness. It does not necessarily mean that you put yourselves back into that position of vulnerability again just for the sake of being vulnerable. Now, that's how a lot of people hear it, unfortunately. When you look at the classic examples in Scripture, classic examples in Scripture of how, of how Jesus dealt with his enemies, often the emphasis is on what happens at his arrest and at the cross where he indeed does make himself vulnerable to his enemies. But this is not some kind of willy-nilly vulnerability. This is within the very plan of God to provide for the salvation of the human race. And so what principle we learn is that when Jesus is applying this and illustrating this at the cross, it is within the structure of a plan with a purpose. It is not just being vulnerable for the sake of being vulnerable or somehow uh, putting himself in a position of danger uh, where he is wrongly accused and wrongly sentenced and wrongly executed just for the sake of, of, of fulfilling some sort of pacifistic view of, of love and grace. It is for a purpose. So that we have to understand that when these passages that we read in Scripture are taken out of context, they can often be tw- twisted to... Show, try to show that the Bible rejects war, rejects violence, even rejects self-defense as a uh, uh, against an attack as some sort of uh, legitimate uh, application of love and grace. But that's that would make uh, much of Scripture uh, contradictory. For God does give clear direction towards violence at times. He gives clear direction towards. Uh, not putting oneself in danger at times, and he also emphasizes that the legitimacy of self-defense so that we can't make the mistake of a superficial interpretation when we come to these kinds of passages. The Bible does not authorize us to foolishly put ourselves in harm's way for the sake of some uh, superficial or shallow notion 
of love and grace. And there's one example we might go to in the life of Christ to demonstrate this. And it again happens the night before he goes to the cross. It's within the context of his arrest and his execution. And that is described in Luke chapter 22, verses 36 and 38. Now, I don't have this up on the slide. You don't need to turn there. But this occurs as he's preparing his disciples for the future. And when he does that, he makes a statement to them, gives them new orders that are, that are different from the orders he gave earlier. Early in his ministry, he sent them out uh, two by two to the house of Israel and not to the Gentiles. And he told them not to take anything with them, not to take money with them, not to take any clothes with them, but they were just going to the house of Israel, not to take a sword with them, and to uh, proclaim the gospel and that God would provide for them. But after his rejection by Israel, and now that he is about to be arrested, he knows that he is, and he's about to go to the cross, he gives them new marching orders in Luke 22:36, And he said to them, But now he who has a money bag, let him take it, and likewise a knapsack. And he who has no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now, that's not a verse that you hear liberals talk about very much. Jesus told his disciples that they needed to be armed so that they could protect themselves when they were going out into the world and would be subject to assault and to attack. Now, if he's in this, if he meant by love your enemies, the idea that you don't defend yourself and that you're just passive to the attack, then This would be a major contradiction in his thinking, but it's not. Because you see, biblically speaking, love and grace have multifaceted concepts that seem contradictory to the shallow liberal view of love. Two verses later, his disciples respond and they answer him and they say, Look, Lord, here are two swords. One of those was Peter's. That's the one he used to chop Malthus's ear off because just after this conversation, they left to go to uh, Gethsemane, and it was there that the uh, Roman soldiers came to arrest him, and we have that incident where uh, Peter drew his sword and chopped off the ear of the high priest's servant. So they had two swords with them that night for protection. The you know, question that needs to be asked is why do they have these two swords for protection? Because anything could happen that night that would possibly lead to the premature death of the Lord rather than allowing him to make it to the cross. And so he is to be protected from an illegitimate personal assault so that he can then be taken advantage of through a uh, false judicial, uh, false application of the judicial system and be arrested under false charges and go to the cross and die for our sins. See, that gets complex. That's not this simple little superficial view of, uh, of life and love and violence that people often think the Scripture has. So it all fits within God's grace plan, every bit of it. And so we have to stop a minute and define what grace is. This is important for understanding what happens in Second Kings 6 and 7. So first of all, we recognize that when we talk about grace, we usually define grace as God's unmerited favor or his unearned blessing. 
God's unmerited favor or his unearned blessing. And that's great as far as, far as it goes. And when we're talking about salvation or we're talking about the spiritual life, that is often as far as we need to go. But that is a somewhat, uh, somewhat restricted definition, focusing on, uh, on God and what he has provided for us. Now we see two verses that give us an example of God's love as related to God's grace and the fact that God's love, which is what lies behind his grace, grace is an application of his love, that God's love is given without respect to the deeds, the actions, the thoughts of the recipient. It is not based on who we are, what we've done. Grace is based on who God is, and it's based upon his character. And we see this in two key verses in the New Testament, John 3.16, which is on the screen, and Romans 5.8, which I'll put up there in a second. Now, in John 3.16, we have this, this statement, and I have uh, translated this my own way here. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his unique son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, God's love is toward the world, towards unbelievers, and that's the main idea within the world, those who are in rebellion against him. His love is not being demonstrated to those who uh, are, po- are, are just positive to God, those who love God. It is directed towards a world that is hostile to him, at enmity to him. And so it is directed to friend and foe alike, believer and unbeliever alike. Romans 5.8 reiterates the same point, that God demonstrated his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. And so it's a demonstration. Both verses, in fact, emphasize the fact that the cross is a demonstration of God's love. It is a demonstration towards us of kindness and generosity in providing a substitute for our sin. But it is an expression of judgment and horror to the Lord Jesus Christ as he paid the penalty for our sin and had to endure receiving the imputation of our sin to, to himself as the perfect, spotless, sinless Lamb of God. So God love, God's love is demonstrated at the cross. It is directed to the world that is hostile to him and without respect to who we are or what we have done. second thing I want to point out about God's grace and God's love in in these verses is that both of these verses use the Greek verb agapao. The Greek verb agapao, which is a broad term for love, and that love is directed toward all human beings. Now, there's another word that is used for God's love in the New Testament, and that's the Greek verb phileo, and that is a narrower concept. Agapao, you could picture as a large circle, and phileo is a subset of that circle. Uh, Agapao and phileo are sometimes used synonymously. When they're used in the same context, phileo will emphasize a more direct, intimate love like the love within a family, the love of a of, of siblings for one another, the love of a husband uh, for a wife, uh, the love that we might have for our friends. It is a close, intimate love, whereas agapao does not bring in those ideas of intimacy and closeness 
which uh, phileo has. So it, phileo describes a more intimate love, and that word and that verb is only used of God's love for believers because they are part of the family of God. So we have a more intimate relationship uh, with God. And because we are within the family of God, we are also subject to family discipline, and that includes punishment. This is seen in Hebrews 12, 5, and 6, which is a quote from Proverbs 3, 11, and 12, which shows that this is a universal principle that's not dispensationally nuanced. It relates to both the Old Testament and to the New Testament. And we read there that uh, you have forgotten, the writer of Hebrews says to those he's writing to, have you forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons? So it's a family issue here for believers. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Now, the word here for chastening is a word that, that indicates a, a, a whipping, a scourging. It is a harshness to this. So sometimes as believers, we are recipients of God's grace and love, and he takes us through some really harsh discipline. See, that doesn't fit your idea of love. It doesn't fit a lot of people's idea of love and grace and God is this wonderful universal father who's just going to let everybody come into heaven because after all they're just nice people and they're so wonderful and I created them and so we're all going to get together. Uh, This is a side of love and grace that is not emphasized. It's a side that brings about a lot of suffering, a lot of punishment in the lives of those God loves intimately because they are believers. Now, the word that's used here is not the word phileo. It's the word agapao because it is addressed to those who are out of fellowship, and those are the ones who are recipients of his uh, of his discipline. So we have to remember that when God's love is directed to those who do not deserve it, do not deserve it and that includes family members who are disobedient, Those actions are described as grace. Grace is the expression of God's love towards those who do not deserve it, those who have not earned it. Love, therefore, involves both blessing and discipline. It involves both the good and the harsh that may come into our lives from the loving hand of God in order to train us, in order to discipline us, and in order to uh, bring punishment into our lives because of our of our disobedience. So as we think about grace as we study in in 2 Kings, we have to think of both the both sides of grace, both in terms of blessing and in terms of judgment. Now one of two two principles that we see throughout the scripture that must un, always be in our mind when we're thinking about this concept is first of all that grace always precedes judgment. Grace always precedes judgment. Before God brings discipline, he is going to extend to us grace to woo us back into fellowship with him before he lowers the boom in harsh discipline. So grace precedes judgment, both in terms of how he deals with believers as well as unbelievers. Second thing is that grace often comes with judgment. Notice I didn't say always because you have one exception 
and that's the flood of Noah. There are other exceptions as well, but with the flood of Noah, there was grace before judgment, but there was no grace during the judgment to the those who were left behind and were dis- destroyed in the flood because they had already had their chance and rejected it. So there does come a time when God stops extending the hand of grace and he has to fulfill the judicial requirement of his nature to bring the, the judgment on those who have rejected him. Now, when we come to thinking about Israel and the history of Israel, we have to always remember that what happens to Israel as a nation is a great picture for us of how God deals with us as individuals. There's an analogy there between the national corporate look at Israel and what it is teaching spiritually about the individual life of believers. And that is one of the ways in which we come to application as we study through these different events in the Old Testament, especially when we get into some that we just wonder, why in the world is that there? That is the most bizarre horrific or whatever example I've ever seen. Why does God want me to know that? And so we have to go back to this this general framework for understanding application. Now, in the Old Testament, God had experienced a rejection by mankind at the Tower of Babel. In disobedience to God, people stayed together in cities, built a tower in rebellion against God to try to uh, make a name for themselves, to protect themselves against God. And as a result, God judged the people and gave them different languages, which caused them to scatter uh, throughout the earth. From that point on, God decided no longer to work through the human race as a whole, but only through one particular individual and his descendants, and that was Abraham and his descendants, Israel. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob's sons, who are the progenitors of the 12 tribes, lead to the tribes of Israel. Now, there was a grace covenant given to Abraham. God freely gave him this promise that he would give him land, he would bless his descendants, and that through his descendants he would bless all people. That's known as the Abrahamic covenant. It's a covenant of grace. And then when God freed them from their slavery in Egypt, a picture of salvation, God entered into a new covenant with them, a covenant that was designed to be a temporary covenant, a covenant that is, that is often referred to as a conditional covenant, but it is merely emphasizing the uh, limited uh, role of the Mosaic law. But it was designed to teach the people of God, the people he's already called out, that's salvation. The Mosaic law is designed to teach them how a saved people We're supposed to live a people that God said he called out in order to be a kingdom of priests in relation to the whole world. And so the the purpose of the Mosaic law was to show the distinctiveness of this one particular people and God's grace to them. Well, because of the the extreme importance of that role and that God had called them to be a kingdom of priests, God said that there were going to be certain consequences if they were disobedient. God would richly bless them if they were obedient, but if they were disobedient, there would be consequences. Now, the blessing aspect of this, which is grace, is described in Leviticus 26, 4 and 5. 
Then I will give you rain in its season. The land shall yield its produce. The trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last till the time of vintage, and the vintage shall last till the time of sowing. You shall eat your bread to the full, dwell in your land safety. Part of the promise, it was agricultural prosperity. They were going to be wealthy. There would never be short of food. There would be rain that would come at the right time. The crops would grow. There would be an abundance of produce. There would be prosperity for all. God would take care of No one would go hungry. Everyone would be provided for. But later on in that chapter, God, God outlines five different stages of discipline or judgment that will come upon the nation if they are disobedient. And these five stages become increasingly harsh, and their purpose is to bring the people back to God so that they will obey him and that he can, so he can bless them. It is part of grace. Now, that's important to understand that, and that's why I've spent so much time setting this up, is because part of this is just seems horrible to us. And so we see it summarized in Leviticus 26, uh, 27 to 29. After this, this is the fourth stage of discipline. After this, if you do not obey me but walk contrary to me, then I will also walk contrary to you in fury, and I even I will chastise you seven times more for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. See, they would come under military conquest, and they would come under siege that would wipe out their access to food, and the people under siege would starve, and it would become so bad that they would become uh, cannibals and that they would eat their own children. Now, that's just a horrible thing. But this is not unknown in history. Just in the, in the 20th century, in the early 30s, when Stalinistic uh, policies uh, took all of the grain out of the Ukraine, and truly Stalin sent his army down there to sweep up every single piece of grain they could find so the people in Ukraine were left with nothing, there were over 5 million Ukrainians that starved to death. A lot of people don't uh, don't know about that. It was called the Holodomor, and it means a uh, uh, killing through through starvation. And there are stories told of how, in many places, people ate their children, killed and ate their children just to survive. So this is not unknown, and it's even known in recent uh, recent history. Deuteronomy 28 gives us a little fuller insight into this, a little fuller description. The warning is given in verses 15 and 17. I'm just going to kind of hit the high points in these verses, not go through all of them, but I want you to catch and to feel the impact of this promise of judgment. But it shall come to pass, if you do not obey the voice of the Lord your God to observe carefully all his commandments and his statutes, which I command you today, that all these curses. Now, when you read the word curse, this isn't juju black magic. This is a biblical term for judgment. It's not some witch spouting off an incantation. The biblical concept of a curse is a divine judgment, a pronouncement of a divine judgment on people for disobedience. Um, All these judgments will come upon you and overtake you. 
Then they're summarized in verse 17, several of them. I just have one up there. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Judgment will come on their food supply. Verse 20, we go on to read, The Lord will send on you cursing, confusion, and rebuke in all that you set your hands to do until you are destroyed and until you perish quickly because of the wickedness of your doings in which you have forsaken me. And your heavens which are over you shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. Pretty hard to farm in a drought of that nature. Now, remember, this is grace. It's the judgment side of grace. But keep that in mind, this is grace. Because it's designed to bring the people back to a place where God can bless them. Uh, Verse 24. The Lord will change the rain of your land to powder and dust. From the heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. So not only the agricultural problem, but also military defeat. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. And you shall become troublesome to all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, Verse 26, your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. No one shall frighten them away. They won't get buried. That's pretty devastating in a Jewish mindset. They were to be buried. Uh, Then skip down to verse 45. Moreover, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. See, the issue is not a lack of agricultural technology or a lack of military skill. The issue is spiritual. It has to do with their orientation of their heart toward God, and because they are disobedient to God, no matter how hard they try militarily or agriculturally, God is not going to give them prosperity or success. So he says, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes which he commanded you. And they shall be upon you for a sign and a wonder and on your descendants forever. It's going to teach everybody else. There's a spiritual lesson here. Uh, Verse 47, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and gladness of heart for the abundance of everything. And in verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. From the end of the earth, as swift as the eagle flies, a nation whose language you will not understand. Eventually, this is fulfilled in uh, the assault from Babylon. Verse 52. They shall besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land. They shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons, and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall uh, shall distress you. Verse 54. The sensitive and very refined man among you, in other words, the educated, successful, young, executive yuppie, will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom and toward the rest of his children whom he leaves behind so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children. In other words, he's going to kill and eat his children. He's going to be so self-centered about it, he's not going to give any to his wife or to his own family. So that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. 
that's not just a nice yuppie man, it's also his wife, the tender and delicate woman among you who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and sensitivity, will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and her daughter her placenta, which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears, for she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. Then verse 58, If you do not carefully observe all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God. Now, all that's just background for being able to understand what happens starting in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 24, on through chapter 7. It's a rather simple episode to deal with, fairly fairly easy to understand. There is a siege. Syria now, according to verse 24, invades. They've been sending in these uh, combat teams to uh, attack and assault uh, the northern kingdom for several years now, but Following this last episode, when Elisha sent the spies or this one hit team back to Ben-Hadad, now he uh, really gets angry, and he decides to pull his whole army together, and so they're going to lay siege to Samaria, to the capital city. We're reminded in verse 25, there was a great famine in Samaria. That's uh, the cycles or stages of discipline, one through three. There is a great a famine in Samaria. Indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels. Now, the significance of that is a donkey was an unclean animal. You don't eat uh, a donkey. You don't eat uh, horse meat under the Mosaic law. So this is not acceptable food, but it was they were so hungry that they would eat a donkey said, now if you've ever been deer hunting or you've ever hunted animals or you've ever butchered an animal, you know that there's not just a whole lot of meat on the skull of any creature. And so there's not much there but bone. And so they would sell a donkey's head for um, 80 shekels, which is equivalent to about two pounds of silver. And in today's market, that's worth about $500. So they were starving to death, and the price of food was so high that just to get the meat off of a donkey's head, they would spend $500. Or they would sell a fourth of a cab, which is about two pints, of, of a dove dung for five shekels, which is about $35. And you just thought you'd been hungry. So that sets the stage. They are starving to death, and the king of Israel then is passing by on the wall, and he is somewhat positive. We have to keep that in mind. He's been listening to Elisha, and he hears a woman cry out to him, Help me, help my lord, O king, verse 26. And he says, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help? You just sense his desperation. He sees these people. He wants to help. There's nothing he can do. If the Lord doesn't do it, how in the world can I do it? I can't help you from either the threshing floor, there's no grain, or from the wine press. And the king then asked her, well, what's troubling you? And she said, this is reminiscent of the woman who brought her, the two women who came with the baby to Solomon. 
same kind of episode. He said, what's troubling you? And this woman says, well, this other woman said to me, give me your son that we may eat him today, and then tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her on the next day, give your son that we may eat him, but she hid her son. Now it happened when the king heard these words of the woman that he tore his clothes, and as he passed by the walls, the people looked, and there underneath he had sackcloth on his body. He is showing that he is in repentance. He's hoping that God would deliver them, and he is trying to, and he is turning to God, but now he shows what often happens with the rest of us. Something happens. We're generally positive and obedient, but something happens and our sin nature kicks in. And so his does, and he blames Elisha. And so he says, God, do so to me, and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. Somebody go behead Elisha. This is all his fault. But he's going to immediately regret this. That shows his positive volition. But Elisha, seen shift in verse 32, Elisha is sitting in his house. House, The elders of the city are with him. Notice Elisha is there going through the famine with them, going through the suffering with them. And the king sent a dispatch to a soldier ahead of him to behead Elisha. And Elisha knows that this messenger is coming. God gives him a revelation to this effect. And he says, do you see how this son of a murderer, that's referring to uh, Jehoram, who is the grandson of Ahab, a murderer, uh, you know how this son of a murderer has sent someone to take away my head. Look, when the messenger comes, comes, uh, shut the door, hold him fast at the door. Is not the sound of his master's feet right behind him. Elisha isn't disobeying the law. He is engaged in defending himself because he knows that the king's going to rescind the order. The king's just right behind him. So it's a delay tactic. Verse 33, while he was talking with him, there was the messenger coming down to him, and then the king arrives and says, Surely this calamity is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? He just says, I know this is from the Lord. Why do I have to go through this? How many of us have gone through that? We have gone through suffering. We've gone through adversity for months and years in certain circumstances, and we just our patience is thin, but we know it's from the Lord. And so we go back and forth between trusting God and being impatient with God because God is teaching us something. So Elisha then announces in verse 1, okay, it's, it's time now. We've pushed everybody to the limit, and now grace is going to come in action, the positive side of grace, the blessing side. Hear the word of the Lord, he says. Thus says the Lord, tomorrow at this time a seah of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate. Now, a seah of, of barley was about the equivalent of uh, seven quarts of barley, and a shekel would be uh, somewhere around uh, a couple of dollars. So you see how the prices change because of supply and demand. Obviously, some big supply of flour and barley is going to come into, uh, into their possession. And so there's an officer there who doubts this, and he reacts, and this officer on whose hand the king leaned answered to the man of God and said, look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, this couldn't happen. He just dismisses the whole thing. If God just started raining flour and barley, that wouldn't happen. 
And he said, in fact, you shall, and he said, that is, Elisha says, in fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it because of your lack of faith. You're going to get judged and you'll see it, but then you'll die. Divine discipline. So now we're told the story from verse 3 down to the end of the chapter of the fact that the Syrians fled during the night. Uh, but they're discovered by these four lepers, unclean men who are living outside the gate of the city, and they're starving to death as well. And finally they decide, let's go down to the Syrians. Uh, they may kill us, but it's better for them to just stab us, spear us, or behead us than to slowly starve to death. So let's go surrender to the Syrians, and maybe they'll give us some food and we, we might survive. But we're told that as they go down at twilight and dusk in verse 6, the Lord had caused the army of the Syrians to hear the noise of chariots and the noise of horses, the noise of a great army. So they said to one another, Look, the king of Israel has hired against us the kings of the Hittites and the kings of the Egyptians to attack us. And therefore they arose and fled at twilight and left the camp. They just left everything behind and had a mass pell-mell retreat. Now, God miraculously caused them all to have the same group hallucination and to hear uh, the assault of an army, and they all fled. And so when the lepers came to the camp, they go from tent to tent, and they find all this food, and they begin to gorge themselves, and they begin to find gold and silver, and they start hoarding it for themselves. But then they think better of it, and they realize that, this isn't right. Verse 9, they say, we're not doing right. This day is a day of good news for everyone, and we remain silent. If we wait until morning light, somebody's going to punish us. See, punishment's a good motivation. Somebody will come along and motivate us. Therefore, let's go and tell the king's household. So they do that, and the, uh, the king sends out a group of... Uh, a group of gatekeepers, and he sends out some soldiers to check the camp, and they discover that the Syrians have fled and that they have left all of this booty behind, including all of this grain and flour. And so by verse 16, we see the fulfillment of the prophecy. Then the people went out and plundered the tents of the Syrians. So a sea of fine flour was sold for a shekel and two seahs of barley for a shekel, according to the word of the Lord. We have prophecy and we have exact literal fulfillment. But there's also a little judgment with that. Verse 17, the king had appointed the officer on whose hand he leaned to have charge at the gate. So this guy is out front, and when the people trampled uh, out, everybody ran out of the city in order to get the food. They trampled him. He saw, but he did not eat. And so the judgment on him was fulfilled. Now, why is this in here? What's the lesson? The lesson is, first of all, that God's grace continues to be extended to this disobedient people. And he continues to do that which he can do in order to cause them to turn back to him so that then he can richly bless them. But their heart is hardened. Again, God is showing that he is the source of food and life in a culture that has chosen death and is worshiping nature and the nature gods, sacrificing their children to idols, and again, they turn their back on God's grace. How many times have we seen these miracles going through chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way down through 7 now, 
that God is doing different things to show he is the God of life, he is the source of blessing, and yet again and again they turn their back on them. See, God's grace doesn't, and his judgment doesn't just fall on us. The instant we're disobedient, he gives us many, many warnings. He extends grace to us again and again to cause us to come back, come back to fellowship. And again, he demonstrates his grace. Now, when we read these episodes and everything that we study through from chapter three on has emphasized the grace of God. Grace is a hard thing for us to understand. It's hard for us to understand how to deal with those who oppose us, who hate us, those who have done us wrong, those who have treated us in an ill manner, because we can only operate on this finite experiential empirical level on the earth. But we have to walk by faith and not by sight. And so what God gives us in, in the Old Testament are these little vignettes, these little pictures, these little snapshots these little scenes of his grace so that we can then understand what grace is really all about and we can begin to implement that in our own lives, the way we think and the way we respond to God. But at the core, we have to be in fellowship. We have to, be, we have to respond to what God brings into our life, both in terms of judgment as well as blessing, not become arrogant or self-sufficient, but we have to remember to turn back to him and to walk closely with him. The commandments for obedience are just as strong in the New Testament as the Old, but it's obedience to the New Testament mandates, not obedience to the Mosaic law. But the Scripture says, how do you show that you love God? You show you love God by keeping his commandments, by staying in fellowship, walking in fellowship. As Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. He doesn't say just bounce in and out of fellowship all the time. But stay in fellowship, walk by means of the Spirit, walk in the light, and only then do we experience the fullness of God's blessing and the good side of his grace. Let's bow our heads together and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things today, to be reminded that your love and your grace not only provide us with all of the uh, rich blessings, the good things that you have, but at times... Your love and your grace also bring discipline, bring harshness, bring adversity into our lives for the purpose of teaching us to trust you, to walk in obedience, to bring us back to fellowship if necessary. But your love is designed to bring us close to you so that you can ritually bless us. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their destiny, their eternal destiny, that you would take this time to make that really clear to them. That Scripture says that we're all born dead, spiritually dead. The wages of sin is death. But the free gift that you have given us is eternal life, which comes through Jesus Christ. The only way to have that is to believe in him, to trust him. And at that instant, we're made a new creature in Christ. We are entered into the body of Christ. We receive uh, all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. And you have given us a new spiritual life. Father, we pray that we might not treat that life lightly. We pray for those who have not, do not have that life, that they would trust in the Lord at this time and, and believe in him and that they would have eternal salvation. And Father, we pray that as we continue to study your word, that uh, you will become more real to us and the Lord Jesus Christ will become more real to us and the truths of your word will become more real to us 
that we may experience all of the wonderful blessings that you have for us in this life and for eternity. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.